Good morning. About 15 years ago, a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon University gained international fame for a last lecture that he gave. Perhaps you would recall Randy Pausch and his last lecture. It was a sort of a uh, tradition at his university that when a professor was about to retire, he would give a last lecture. In Randy's case, it had a little darker tone, though, because he was dying of pancreatic cancer in the prime of his life. And yet, he maintained the tradition, and he turned that darkness into light and gave his last lecture and taught the students and those that watched about life, not about computer science. And uh, got picked up and was available on YouTube, and Oprah picked it up and put him on uh, Oprah, and uh, this might be the only time I plug Oprah or quote a computer scientist in a sermon, but uh, I came across that, and it had an impact on me in my life in my early 20s uh, that uh, has stuck with me today. And so as we approach this message, a quote from him that I had written down and put uh, several places that I would see it uh, was came to mind. And that quote is that the brick, lie, brick walls in life are not there to keep us out. They're there to give us a chance to show us how badly we want something. And it was a reminder that often in the pursuit of great things, of dreams, of visions, of whatever it might be, spiritual or secular, there will be opposition, there will be challenges that need to be overcome. And so here in week four of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, we find Chapter 4 is titled, The Journey Through the Wall. And I love the subtitle, which I think is the real focus and what the wall represents. And that subtitle is Letting Go of Power and Control. See, the world tells us that power and control are in short supply. There's only so much to go around, and so we should get as much as we can and keep it for as long as we can. But in this chapter, and we see throughout Scripture... The notion of life as a journey with different stages or seasons. Now, personally, I prefer seasons because stages kind of gives this idea that once I go through stage one, I don't ever have to go through stage one again, or stage four, or five, or six. And seasons has a little more cyclical uh, idea. We don't control when seasons come. They come whether we like them or not. And some of you are eagerly anticipating fall really settling in and these 90-degree temperatures being a thing of the past. Others can't wait for today and tomorrow to get warm and sunny, and you're just holding on to that last little bit of summer, wherever you land on that. You don't have much control over the seasons as they come and go. There are some things about them that are predictable, and I think that's the case of the different seasons or stages of our journey with God. And as we read the pages of Scripture, we see from the very beginning God calling people to a journey with Him. And sometimes that journey is a literal journey from one physical location to another physical location. Other times that journey is far more spiritual. And we see this over and over, and each time the journey involves deeper and deeper trust, a reliance upon God. We see this with Abraham, who is pretty well known and had it pretty well off in the land of Ur, and God calls him at the age of 75 when he had to be thinking about his twilight years, his retirement years, and he says, get up and go to a place that I'll show you. He doesn't even tell him where it is. 
And Abraham, the man of faith, the father of the faith, got up and went. He went on the journey with God. We see Moses. We see the Israelite nation. We see Naomi and Ruth going on a journey with God. We see King David. We see Esther. We see the prophets. We see Mary and Joseph going on journeys, both literal and figurative. We see the disciples, the Apostle Paul, and others through the New Testament going on journeys of trust and dependence with God. Many heroes of the faith followed God into the unknown, and more than a few did not. There are Saul's. There are Jonah's who at first resisted and actually went 180 degrees in the opposite direction. We see the people of Israel often not choosing to follow God, not choosing to go on the journey. The report of the spies in the land, two faithful spies, we can go, we can take the land, ten unfaithful spies saying we can't, they'll squash us. And so we see this, we see Judas following Jesus for over three years, every single day in the presence of the Son of God, and then betraying him to death. Now, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick have done some research into this and come up with what they dis describe as the stages of faith. There's an image on the screen that shows this in sort of a visual presentation with stage one at the top and moving around that circle. And you'll see this bright red line, a thick line called the wall. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the journey through the wall. Now, I personally have found this framework to be very true in my own life and in the lives of many that I've known and pastored. It is a framework, though. It is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It tells us and helps us make sense, maybe, of some things that we are going through. It is not restrictive. The details are different. It's not that you spend a year in stage one and then you go to stage two. It's more seasonal in that regard, that some stages may last longer than others. Some stages may last much longer than we would like. And the reason that it matters is that around halfway through that journey is the wall, or what some have called the dark night of the soul. And many don't make it through the wall, sadly. And they settle for far less than God desires of them and for them. But it's at this point that I want to encourage you, and I've used this analogy before, but it bears repeating occasionally, that there's a mirror and a magnifying glass in my hands. And I would encourage you to use the mirror as we walk through this, and anytime you encounter Scripture, to look into your life and not necessarily try to figure out what's going on in somebody else's life or how this Scripture applies to so-and-so or if so-and-so has gotten through the wall or might be at the wall. Just allow yourself to hold the mirror and pray the prayer that the psalmist said, Lord, search me and know me and help me to know myself. And if you're really brave and really bold, you might even use the magnifying glass to see yourself a little more clearly, but only in between you and the mirror, not to inspect the lives of others. And with that said, I want to look at the life of Moses through this framework, and I want to see what we can learn 
about the stages of faith in Moses' life and how he proceeded from one stage to the next. And you could interpret this a number of different ways, but as I looked at the story of Moses, at the story of Moses' life, I saw these stages play out. And I want to kind of walk you through that, and I want to encourage you to kind of ask yourself, where am I in these stages of faith? Because we see Moses coming to stage one, which is a life-changing awareness of God. And if you want to turn in your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start there with verses 1 through 3 where, jo- where Moses is, is encountered or intersected by God himself. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush, if you're not familiar with the story. And he develops a life-changing awareness of God in a very short period of time. A burning bush that's not consumed has a tendency to do that. If you need one of our Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you, and you can turn to page 90 uh, to pick up the story. It's also going to be on the screens um, behind me and, and online. But we see in Exodus chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And the remainder of that story, God speaks to Moses out of this burning bush. And you have to wonder as you read the rest of the narrative, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, as you read all of these events of Moses' life, there was more than one time when I'm sure he wishes he had just kept walking and not gone over and seen what this burning bush was all about. But this life-changing awareness of God for Moses correlates to our lives where we begin our relationship with Christ, where we encounter His mercy, where we seek His salvation, where we go from just being curious or convinced to being certain, to being committed to Christ and to a relationship with Him. Moses at the burning bush had a personal encounter with God, and the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ wants to have a personal encounter with you and wants to begin a personal relationship with you that will last for eternity. And so if this is news to you, then you're in good place. And today might be the day that you have a life-changing awareness of God flood into your own life. But as we move on from that first stage to the second stage, you don't have to go much farther in the book of Exodus there to to see where the discipleship begins, where the learning and following God begins. For Moses, it's a pretty quick on-ramp because he's called to do big things. He's called to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and deliver an entire nation, several million people likely, out of captivity in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. So the on-ramp is pretty steep. But in Exodus 4, verses 2 through 5, the Lord says to him, as they begin to dialogue, and Moses is like, would you just send somebody else? Like, why are you picking me? I'm not the one for this task. And God says to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Now, there's a whole sermon here that I I think I've even preached here. I'm not sure if I have. If not, I'll figure it out and we'll find a place for it because it's a really good sermon because that staff represents Moses' life, his livelihood, 
It's his income. It's his authority. It's everything. He throws that on the ground. He lays that at the feet of God and surrenders that to him. And Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake, and he ran from it. Here's where the discipleship begins. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, we look over this, but that's a serpent in the desert. There's no emergency room with an antivenom 20 minutes away. There's no ambulance to call. This is perilous ground, to be sure. And he says, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. And this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. This will be a sign that you can repeat, Moses. When people don't believe that I've sent you, you can do this to help them understand. I have absolutely sent you. And so this begins the journey of discipleship, learning and following God. Jesus called disciples to him. They had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and they began to follow him. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower. It's a learner. It's an apprentice. It's one who watches and who does what the one they're following is doing. And so we've defined this a number of different ways. Probably my favorite that I reference often, favorite definition of discipleship is learning to live my life as Jesus would if he were me. I've shared that many times, but that puts it into context. So whether you're retired or you're working, whether you're a young mother or you're a grandparent, whether you're working in a secular field or a spiritual field or a nonprofit, it doesn't really matter. Wherever you are, you're learning to live your life as you would, as Jesus would if he were you. That's discipleship. Another definition that I like is to learn to joyfully trust and obey Jesus. To joyfully trust and obey Jesus. I think we've all known people who got the trust and obey part but missed the joy completely. To joyfully trust and obey Jesus is how John West, who wrote and put together the Banding Together journals that we use here. And for Moses, this represents picking up a snake by the tail, learning to trust and obey Jesus started out pretty severely for him to pick up a snake in the desert. And yet, over the course of the next few years, he had many opportunities to learn to trust and obey Jesus. That There's sort of a second stage here, and I see the second and third stages. I'm sorry, there's a third stage. The second and third stage overlap. They kind of intermingle with each other. The third stage is the active life. It's beginning to serve God and His people, and it's as we serve God that we learn more about Him, and as we learn more about Him, we serve Him with what we have learned. That's the whole idea. Now, we can all think of perhaps people who got to stage one, But they didn't get very far into stage two, and they never really began serving, and they bought into this lie that Christianity is just kind of a consumer thing. I go, I do a few things, I maybe pay a tithe or give an offering, and I'm good. And there is an active life. There is a serving that takes place. Moses begins to serve God and serve God's people. He becomes the leader of the nation of Israel. He learns more about trusting and obeying as he serves. And so as we journey through Exodus, we see chapters 5 through 13 as this learning and serving, this active life of Moses, was as he sees The plagues where Yahweh establishes his supremacy over the Egyptian gods one at a time. And each plague represents God's supremacy over some false god. 
that the Egyptians believed in. And so really smart people have traced that all out, and you can read it in a good study Bible or a good commentary on the book of Exodus, but it's a smackdown on all the false gods that Egypt has ever dreamed up. God establishes his supremacy over them one at a time. And then as he leads the people of God out into the wilderness, he leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parts the Red Sea so they can walk through. He does miracles. He provides for them. He provides water. He provides food. He provides for them. They're learning in this active life. Moses is leading them through this. It's not easy, but they are constantly learning and growing together. And we see a few examples of this really taking root in Moses' life. In Exodus 15, the song of Moses, he starts to put into words what he has learned, what he has discovered as he has served. In Exodus 20, Moses is brought up onto the mount of God again, this time to receive the Ten Commandments, the law. And it's through this learning and serving that Moses becomes more intricately aware of God's character, of God's nature, of who he is and how he can be counted upon to act. And so stage four is where we find the wall. Stage four in Moses' life, we'll get to that in a moment, but this is where he kind of comes up and, and faith stops working. Now, the wall, it's important to understand, is not just trials or difficulties. It's not a bunch of red lights that make you late for work and you get in trouble. That's not the wall. <laughs> it's, it's deeper than that. It's not bad luck or a little persecution, maybe a snide comment from a coworker. The wall represents a crisis of faith. Maybe it's brought on by a divorce. Maybe it's brought on a big loss in your life. A persistent, unfulfilled desire, a betrayal by somebody very, very close to you. These are all examples of the wall, but there are as many walls as there are people, and they all have one thing in common, this crisis of faith, where we begin to question God, we begin to question ourselves, we begin to question the church, because our faith doesn't seem to be working anymore. Our prayers don't seem to be heard or answered. There's disillusionment. It's disorienting. All closeness with God evaporates to the point that we can wonder if he even exists at all. And we see Moses get to this place in Numbers chapter 11. We see Moses get to this place where he wonders if it's worth it at all. And this is Moses who saw God work powerfully in the plagues in Egypt. This is Moses who saw God part the Red Sea. This is Moses who had led the people of God in this active stage of life. He comes to the wall, and we see in Numbers chapter 11 just how bad it got. Now, these verses read a little better in a whiny voice, so I'm going to do it in a whiny voice. Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought me this trouble on your servant? Why have you done, what have I done to displease you? that the burden of all the people is placed on me. Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their fathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing, give me meat, give me meat. I can't carry these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Now, all joking aside, the next phrase shows you just how bad it got for Moses. If this is how you're going to treat me, 
Put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. Moses is suicidal here. He has come to the end of himself. His faith is not working. He has lost his confidence in God, in himself, in the people of God. And maybe you can identify with Moses here. I know for me in my own life, as I relate to this, that there was a season in my life where everything in ministry was up and to the right, and I came to over-identify myself and my identity with what I had done for God. And I adopted this identity that I was the successful pastor of a growing church. And then through a variety of circumstances, I was no longer the successful pastor of a growing church. I was a struggling pastor of a faltering church in some ways. I was in a second chair position. I was not in a good place at all. My faith was no longer working. I found myself in a deep depression. I lost my identity completely for a season. I was frustrated, I was angry, and I despaired. And I almost didn't make it through, but praise God I did. Because many get stuck at the wall. And they get stuck at the wall for years, or decades, or a lifetime. And they choose to sit at the foot of the wall, or to walk alongside it, or to turn back altogether, or to just settle. This is as good as it gets. It's never going to get any better. But those who do make it through find that they are freer. They find that they have a clearer identity in Christ. They find a deeper trust in God than anything they could have imagined before that. It has a purifying effect on our faith in God and our love for God. Now, I hope that I'm only going to go through one wall, but there are no promises. And there's a part of me that if I find myself at another wall, I know what's on the other side of it now. A deeper faith, a deeper love for God, a deeper trust, a deeper connection with him. And I can even see how maybe there have been a few smaller walls since that major wall in my life. Really tough seasons where I had to learn to trust God in a new way. Before we move on here, I want to talk about four dynamics of life on the other side, the other side of the wall. There are four dynamics that, that will give us greater insight into whether or not maybe we have made it through the wall. The first is a greater level of brokenness, and, and you recognize this, that Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first line of the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that there is something that comes to those who are poor in spirit who recognize their need, who recognize that they don't have it all together, who can say, I've been broken, and there are parts of me that are still broken in and of myself, but they have been mended, they have been healed, they have been strengthened by God. And I think one indicator of this level of brokenness is how offendable we are, that once we realize we don't have it all figured out and, and we have grace for ourselves, we can have more grace for others, and we don't have to get so offended when things happen that we're not pleasing to us. There's a greater level of brokenness. That's one of the first dynamics of life on the other side of the wall. The second would be a greater appreciation for holy mystery. I remember early in my faith, I wanted to figure it all out. I wanted to have it all understood. I wanted to read through the Bible in a year and understand everything there was to know about God. And then I did read through the Bible in a year, and I realized that I knew so much less. 
than I thought I would at the end of that experience. I had a greater appreciation for the bigness of God, but I realized there were so many things I didn't know and didn't understand. And they didn't get all answered in seminary either. They, didn't get under, they don't necessarily get an airtight answer. There's always going to be a need for faith. There are always going to be questions that we can't understand and we don't have the answer for, and that's why it's called faith, that we can be certain of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. Now, the third dynamic there would be a deeper ability to wait for God, a greater patience, a greater stillness, more peace in the midst of that. We see the Spirit bearing fruit in our lives as we wait for God, as we can be still and know that He is God. And lastly, a greater detachment from our false self, from the striving, from the, the loads that were placed on us by people, maybe well-intentioned, maybe not, the expectations. We have a little deeper detachment from that. And that enables us to attach ourselves to God and for His will for our lives in new ways. And we can move beyond that false self, the ego, and what it wants, and the flesh, and what it desires, and causes us to pursue. And uh, there's a quote from the book where I think Schizero nails this. He says, the critical issue on the journey with God is not, am I happy, but am I free? Let that settle in. Because our ego wants to be happy. Our ego wants to be satisfied. God wants us to be free from all those things that our flesh pursues. The critical issue on the journey with God is not, am I happy, but am I free? Am I growing in the freedom God gave me? And then he references 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 31. We don't have time to dig deeply into that passage, but he summarizes or applies that passage by saying this, we are to live our lives as the rest of the world, marrying, experiencing sorrow and joy, buying things and using them, but always with an awareness that these things in themselves are not our lives. We are to be marked by eternity, free from the dominating power of things. Detachment is the great secret to interior peace. Interior peace being a fruit of the Spirit. And so our bottom line today, as we consider the wall and the journey through the wall, is that deeper freedom is found on the other side of the wall. It's not that there's no freedom before you get to the wall. There is freedom. There's freedom in Christ. There is freedom from the penalty of our sins. There's all kinds of freedom before, but there is a deeper freedom on the other side of the wall. That righteousness, peace, and joy that we've been talking about, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit being evident increasingly in our lives, the pursuit of holiness. And that's why I can say that maybe there are multiple walls, but if there are, there's more righteousness, peace, and joy. There's deeper freedom on the other side of each wall that we face and overcome with Christ. And that leads us to stage five, to the journey outward, where we have this new grounded center in God. And we see this in Moses' life after this experience, after this encounter. As he intercedes for these people that are complaining, these people that he was just complaining to God about, he begins to intercede for them so that God won't wipe them off the face of the earth. He intercedes for Aaron and Miriam who disrespect him in a really, really horrible way. He serves the Lord for 40 years with this unfaithful generation. He leads them 
through the wilderness. And each time they circle around, he comes to a deeper humility, a deeper selflessness, where he's more God-focused, more others-focused, and less Moses-focused. Now, on the other side of the wall, we may do many of the same things or similar things for God and for his people, but we now do it with that deeper freedom, that deeper inner stillness and trust in God, and we do so with an outward focus. Ironically, as we focus outward, as we move outward, the opinions of others have less and less of an impact on us because we desire to please God and to serve Him more and more and to serve others more and more, and it's not a popularity contest anymore. And while our ego used to maybe hate a complaint or somebody offering up some criticism, those things don't stick anymore. We become slippery to complaints and criticism and stickier to our identity in Christ and what He says about us. And this final stage then would be transformed into love. I think the whole book of Deuteronomy and the whole premise of Deuteronomy is the evidence of this in Moses' life, that he was transformed into love. One of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy is a lengthier passage from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. Right at the end of Deuteronomy, which is sort of his commencement address, his graduation speech, right at the end of his life as they're about to move into the promised land, this new generation is going to take the promised land with God. Moses says this, and he goes out at the end in verse, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. He spoke these words to Israel. He says, I am now 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Now, this is a big deal. He's saying, Moses, you're not going to the literal promised land. And Moses could have been upset about that, but he's completely surrendered to God at this point. And he's thinking about them, not himself. And so he says the very next words out of his mouth, the Lord, your God himself, will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said, and the Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. He's telling them what's going to take place. He's saying, I'm not going over, but that's okay. Because God is going over, and your new leader, Joshua, the faithful one, the one who gave the good report, he's going to lead you. He continues in verse 5, the Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's not quoting scripture here. He's making the promise as the prophet of God to the people of God. He's saying, God will be with you. I know, he's been with me all the way. And he will be with you all the way. And he is emptying his cup. And he is filling their cup with faith. Then he summons Joshua. He's thinking about the next generation of leaders. He summons Joshua. He said to him, in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous. For you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you, Joshua, and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do you see the deep acceptance of God's will for Moses, the deep trust in God's presence with his people, the deep faith in what God will do? He has a deep and abiding love for God and for his people. He has a deep and abiding faith in God, in his presence, in his provision. He's seen it over and over again. You cannot convince Moses 
that God is not with them, that God is not for them. In the following chapters, 32 and 33, we find Moses writing hymns of praise to God and speaking blessing over his people. He's been transformed into love. At the end of his life, he's only thinking about his God and about the people that God asked him to serve, and he speaks and declares blessing on his people. You see, a deeper freedom was found on the other side of the wall for Moses, and the same is true for us. Will you pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this lesson in the walls. And while we do not welcome the walls, we are grateful for what comes on the other side, and we trust you at the foot of the wall. And we pray, Lord, that we will meet the walls of life with faith, with grace, with patience. If there's somebody who feels like they're at the wall, like they've been at the wall for some time, oh, Lord, I pray that you would help them break through. For those that are maybe hearing about you for the first time, that they would step into a relationship with you, that they would confess their need of a Savior, they would repent of their sins, they would ask you to forgive them and begin a relationship with you. Pray that they would tell somebody right away, somebody who can help them grow, a member of our staff, a friend that they know has been discipled. Wherever we are on this journey, Lord, we are grateful that you are there with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, even when it feels like you have. Help us to keep leaning into you, keep pressing into you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.